there's absolutely one universal characteristic of getting older, is you don't think things are quite as bad as, as younger people think they are. Hello and welcome to Trigonometry. I'm Francis Foster. I'm Constantine Kisson. And this is a show for you if you want honest conversations with fascinating people. Our brilliant guest today is an author and Guardian journalist, Simon Jenkins. Welcome to Trigonometry. It's great to have you on the show. Uh, before we get into the conversation itself, tell everybody a little bit about who you are, how are you, where, where you are, what has been your journey through life? How long have you got? A long, we've got an hour, so <laughs> okay. far away. No, I, I left university. I think I wanted to be an academic and I wanted to use academia as a way into politics because I was interested in politics, sort of mildly left of centre then. Uh, I didn't like academia. I, I disliked universities very much. I spent a year and a half in one uh, after graduating and um, uh, chucked that in. Um, I became very interested in politics because it's, it's to me, it's the sign of, of a living person. They're interested in politics. Um, but, um, but I was a journalist from student days and I always loved journalism and I still do and I've done it ever since. In that time I've done other jobs, I've done other sorts of, I've, I've been editing as well as writing in journalism. Um, I, I, I believe journalists should do other jobs as well because it gives them a taste of what the rest of life is like. Um, and uh, written books on architecture, history and so on. But um, journalism, I, I, I can't stop having an opinion. <laughs> well, great. And look, you've had a distinguished career, of course. Uh, one of the things we were talking about before we started is Francis, you know, the depressive character that he is, was giving you all doom and gloom about where we are and talking about how we're in a political crisis. And you were sort of going, well, yes, but. So give us the but. Give us a historical but to that, to that perspective. I think there's absolutely one universal characteristic of getting older is you don't think things are quite as bad as, as younger people think they are. I mean, you think everything's bad, because that's, that's what old people do. <laughs> but um, there is a sense in which you've seen it before. Mm -hmm. And I always remember my parents saying to me, no one could understand the interwar years in Britain who knew about the Second World War. You just, you, you had to know or experience the, the pattern of events to judge the past. And this business at the moment of endlessly judging the past or rejudging the past, I just find very offensive. Uh, because, you know, we aren't there. We're here. Um, we're not in a position to judge. We're in a position to record and see what's happening. But it's easy to say every... I mean, when I was a student, we thought our politicians were rubbish, absolutely rubbish. Uh, and looking back at them, we think they were titans. You know, these are great men. Um, and I'm sure it's the same today. I, I, I genuinely think that the present generation of politicians in Britain are the worst ever. I couldn't, you couldn't disagree with that. Certainly the worst in the 20th century. But I then stop and think to myself, you know, I, I was a student in the Heath government. We thought they were useless. Uh, the Labour government, the country was a terrible mess in, 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 in the mid to late 70s, a real mess. Thatcher was hated. Um, uh, I think she was actually a very interesting prime minister, but she was hated. Um, it's a part of the duty of Democrats to hate their government. Um, the sign of a good democratic democracy is it votes its government out of office regularly. So I'm, I'm, I'm fairly sanguine about the state of the world. And I do think that, that, that I've always thought democracy was never necessarily going to triumph. Um, I mean, dictatorship is a much more popular form of government, really. Uh, um, uh, but at the same time, um, things do get better. I, I'm, I'm with Steven Pinker. Fewer people get killed every year. Uh, more people uh, survive and don't die of starvation. Uh, there's a genuine sense that, that mankind progresses. 
I don't get hysterical about global warming. I'm, I'm, I think it exists. I'm not a denier. But I suppose I'm, I'm, a, I'm a mild optimist in my general outlook on the world. <laughs> That's very interesting. We, it's very rare to have a mild optimist in, in the chair, Simon. And well, why are you a mild optimist? What is there to be optimistic about at the moment, do you think? Well, it, it does. You, go to, you read about the 14th century occasionally. <laughs> you know, I, I mean, often people will say, what, what, what year would you most like to have lived in? And I mean, I, I can choose a few. I mean, I, certainly 1492, I'd love to have been around then, when discovering America and mm. you know, mm. Christianity was triumphing in a brutal way. I mean, everything was going on in 1492. And then 1868, when they're building railways everywhere, a very exciting time. There are periods like that. But I just do think, statistically, and I'm, I believe in facts, things do get better each year. I mean, not everything gets better, for God's sake, but things do get better each year. And when something happens like Afghanistan, you think, hold on a minute, you know, Afghanistan's had 20 years of, 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 of sort of joy, uh, and, and now it's gone wrong, which is the normal. Uh, I just don't know which is the normal. I mean, m much of the Muslim world is in a terrible state now. Well, that's their business, not mine. Um, and, uh, and at least I'm not bombing everyone still, as I, were, as I was 10 years ago. It, it's an interesting point. I think I would disagree with you that things get better every year. I mean, they get better every century. Uh, but within that century, there's a lot of fluctuations. And I, I would argue we're living through one. But let's come back to your point about politicians, because I take your point, and I'm sure as I get older, I will be the same. But the, the BBC recently put out this drama, uh, documentary, not drama, with Tony Blair and, and Gordon Brown. I don't know if you saw that. I thought it was very good and actually what the BBC uh, should be doing. And I couldn't help watching that and think, look, I, I, I disagree with a lot of what Tony Blair did, Iraq and you know mass immigration policy, etc. But the caliber of people that were in that documentary seems to me to be completely off the charts compared to the people that we have now, who've been media trained out of their brains, who will never say anything that you can actually convert into actual coherent thought, who, who, who are not people of you know, significance or talent, in my opinion. I, I don't know most of them, and I'm interested in politics, very interested. So wouldn't, is it not fair to say that the, the sort of caliber of politicians has declined? I don't think so. You don't I, think I, so? I don't, I don't, I mean, it is... It is you don't think Keir Starmer versus Tony Blair, is, there's a big difference there? It's a genuine generational fallacy <laughs> that you've adumbrated, I think. Um, I mean, the, the famous parliament of, 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 of 1918, um, when someone looked across the House of Commons, all they could see were fat cats who'd done well out of the war. It was the famous phrase they produced, you know. Everybody was corrupt. Everybody was, was second rate. Um, uh, and yet they got us through the mid-war period, they got us into the Second World War, I suppose. But it, it was, you know, it, 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 you've just got to try and put your perception of the present in terms of the past, if, you're, if that's the judgment you're making. You can say, look, this lot are useless and we've got the hell ahead of us, and they're not up to it. That's a different judgment. But looking to the past and saying they're worse than the past... Um, I'm just I'm just reluctant to form those judgments. But Simon, come on. You've got a, a leader of the Labour Party, and by the way, Boris Johnson's no better, who they don't know what a woman is anymore, right? I mean, we didn't have those sort of people 20 years ago. We just didn't. 
You didn't know who Water Woman was? Yeah, I Keir mean, Starmer was asked, do women have cervixes? And you went, that was his... <laughs> no, well, he, 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 he was trapped by the present hysteria. You're quite right. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not arguing with you there. Yeah. Um, but no, I think Keir Starmer is perfectly adequate in comparison with most other politicians since the war. I really do. Um, Boris Johnson's an eccentric. He's a, he's a real oddball, let's put it that way. Um, Rishi Sunak is not. Michael Gove is not. Um, these are people who could have served in a, in, in a Thatcher government or a Macmillan government or wherever it was. Um, uh, I, I just don't leap to conclusions about people's character and personality until they're put to the real test. And let's face it, the last 18 months has been a real test. Mm. I mean, I don't know where Blair would have been in that. And Blair was a remarkable politician, let me say. I mean, yeah. so, so in a sense, comparing him to Stalin, he, he had charm. Politicians who have charm have it all made for them, as Boris Johnson has been showing in the past. Um, so, uh, I mean, the qualities that make a great leader are very difficult to pin down. I mean, someone like Alec Douglas Hume, he was a fantastically popular man. He's a useless prime minister, but he was, he was popular. <laughs> and he almost won an election. I mean, he was, it was extraordinary. So I'm just reluctant to rush to those sorts of conclusions. I want to judge them by their outcome, by what happens. We do tend to have a very weird relationship with the past, don't we? Where we either romanticise it or want to tear down figures from it. It, it seems to be a very binary approach to the past. I think, I think it's, a, it's a, a fault of, of political conversation generally, the, the, the binary approach. I don't know. I mean, I was kind of brought up school studying classics and, and my, my teacher's one obsession was Socrates. And we spent a whole time studying bloody Socrates. <laughs> <laughs> but the thing I learned from it was the dialectic method, the concept of polarisation. Um, what are you saying? What are you saying? Uh, can we have an argument? Don't pretend you agree. Let's see if you disagree and let's fight it out. And I passionately believe in debate. That's why I believe that the media must be polarised in some sense, um, with all the reservations you might have about that. Um, but I, I mean, I just, I, I, I do think that, that the, um, the, the concept of there being differences, the concept of there being different points of view is embedded in political conversation. And if you smother it, uh, even if you say, well, can't we find a compromise? <laughs> you, 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 you're running a risk. You're running a risk that you come to the wrong conclusion in something. But we don't seem to have debate as much anymore, do we? Where people, and again, push back on this, uh, it seems that we're more polarised than ever. We're in our little silos. And society seems to be that we, we, we don't want to talk to somebody who disagrees with us. Is that, is that me looking at society now and... And romanticising the past again? Or is, there, or is there a truth behind what I'm saying? No, you're romanticising the past. Okay, great. Thanks. <laughs> I mean, I, mean I, I, I go back to... All right, we, we, hopeless. People in my generation, we always... I go back to... Yeah. Mm. I go back to the 60s. It's when I sort of had my political education. And, um, and I go back to a time when, when every play in London was censored. Uh, gays were sent to prison. Uh, divorce was exceptionally difficult. Um, abortion was banned. Uh, I mean, I can't, I can't think of the, the, the list of, 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 of activities that were, and the, the church was immensely powerful. Um, and no one challenged it. I mean, you, you make the point. I mean, no one challenged it. Somehow that was acceptable. Let's not push, let's mess around the boat. I mean, it, it, immigrants are all, you know, I mean, it, it, was, it was, looking back, we sort of said, well, that's how we live. And it's how people in Muslim countries now live. So I'm familiar with that syndrome, but it existed in Britain. Um, I mean, the taboos 
that, that, that exist now have mostly gone. Mm -hmm. gone, but they've mostly gone. Taboos about we have new ones now. We we we, we got you, you got new ones that they're, they're to do with personal identity. They're to do with yeah. race. They're to mm -hmm. do with for some reason drugs, which fascinate me. Um, but I mean, there, there are taboos. Still, you're absolutely right. Um, you know, paying for health is, is still is still taboo. Uh, in every other country, you pay and you get paid back if you do, but you you, you pay. Um, so I just don't think it's that different. I really don't. And as you said, they're new taboos. Well, that's that's what I mean. I think what what people like me feel is I admired people and watched comedians, for example, who pushed back against that religious dogma. Um, and I thought that was important in order to liberate individuals from the oppressive ideology of state-sanctioned religiosity or whatever that might be. And having gone through that, I sort of thought, well, we've got somewhere. We've made progress here. But what I feel like has happened more recently is instead of stopping there, we've, we've gone to a new form of progress, which has now become a new religion that is imposing its own taboos on society. I think, well, I mean, I agree. I mean, I, I found the whole concept of cultural wars uh, odious and, um, mm. uh, you know, up to a point worrying. If I thought that more than 17% of people agreed with them, I'd be more worried. Uh, the question is, what's gone wrong with the other 87%? Um, uh, and uh, and that's, that's a, a different conversation. But um, but no, I mean, I, I, what I'm saying is I think, I think you've, you've, we've pushed so many boundaries um, back to, the, to, to what might call almost a liberal extreme. Mm. It's almost inevitable there's a, there's, a, there's, a, there's a pushback on that. Well, obviously, yeah. Um, and and it's, it's to be expected. I mean, you know, in America now, where the education system appears to be trapped by a sort of um, ethos, dogmatism, um, you know, they, they lose the election. People won't put up with it. No. And I, 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 because I just believe that most Western societies lucky enough to be blessed with the European liberal ethic, uh, do have within them pushbacks. Um, uh, you know, there's an American I used to see whenever I w went over there um, to, to, to you know, report whatever I was doing. He was an elderly philosopher, I can't even remember his name. Um, uh, and he always said to me, whenever I was saying, how can you put up with this man, Nixon? How can you, put, how can you tolerate Reagan? I mean, what's going on? And he always said, the American Constitution is not built the way yours is, with an ongoing conversation within a civilized parliament. We go right to the boundary. We go to the edge of the cliff. We're about to fall over the cliff. And, 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 and the elastic in the Constitution pulls us back at the last minute. And interestingly, uh, I wish he'd been alive when Trump was around, because I'd like to say, <laughs> <didn't>, <laughs> you, you almost went over the cliff. But he would have said, but we pulled back. Hmm. Now, yeah, I, no, I, you pull back to Joe Biden. There's well, quite some pull well, back. Well, not it? just that, but I mean, if, if Trump comes back, right? There's a very you... interesting article in the Statesman saying, I mean, what literally happens if Trump comes back? What literally happens if he wins? I mean, um, this is going to be the ultimate test for the American Constitution, and I, and I do believe that I can see that as, as, as a plausible scenario. I can't quite believe it's going to happen, but there we are. Um, is Johnson going to stay there ten years? Then what? Dear God. <laughs> but, hey, Constantine, do you love trigonometry? Of course. Incredible interviews, hilarious live streams, hard-hitting satire, plus my handsome jawline. Whatever takes away from your hairline. But if you do love trigonometry and you want to support us, there's only one place to do that, and that's on Locals. Yes, Locals is a brilliant platform that has been incredibly supportive to our show and other 
problematic creators. The great thing about Locals is that it's a community for people who love trigonometry. That's right, it's a place for you to hang out with like-minded people, share thoughts, memes, and discuss the show. You can enjoy it for free, but it also gives you the option of supporting us for as little as $7 a month. And if you want to give more, you can. We have incredible rewards for our higher tier supporters as well. We've got everything from mugs, monthly group calls, and one-on-two chats with me and KK. Get in. Join our community by hitting the link in the description and the pinned comment below. See you there, guys. Looking at Trump and looking at Johnson absolutely decimating the opposition, and being a person of the left, as I am, do you not think, Simon, that the left needs to take responsibility for these victories and actually say that they're not appealing to the ordinary working person? They're not making that connection. Well, hold, hold on. I mean, the, 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 the left, or chunk of the left, a critical chunk of the left, deserted Labour, voted for Johnson. Um, now, those same people appear from the polls to be revolting against him because they don't like much in his form of government. Um, that's the system hitting back. Um, I, I, I do think that the British Constitution has this ability to, to you know, bite back, and I like it. I, that, that sort of works. Um, uh, by the same token, I was desperately disappointed during the Brexit argument without getting involved in the actual argument itself. But it was clear that Parliament was very upset by not just Brexit, but hard Brexit, by the the approach the government was taking, uh, intransigent hostility, all these things were were bred into it. And Parliament had an opportunity um, uh, uh, when when, May was in real trouble to seize control of the executive from the government uh, and say, we want these following things to be done. And the Labour Party then, and the Liberal Democrats and the the Scott Nats, the various opposition parties in Parliament, could have got together and never did. And I remember thinking, that's the, I thought that was the death of Parliament. The Parliament is now just an electoral college and nothing else. When offered the chance to take a lead, he couldn't do it. Uh, and and uh, I mean, quite a few quite senior Labour figures I, I know thought, you know, do, we, do we seize control in some sense? Um, and, uh, and just couldn't find it in them to do so. Party discipline being what it was. Um, so, you know, we do, we, do, we do go near the edge occasionally and we, we sometimes fail. And I think in that case it failed. I don't think Johnson's victory was all that surprising. Um, I don't actually think it's a catastrophe. I think he's, he's, he's a very odd man. I know him a bit. He's a very odd man. Um, <laughs> uh, uh, and my, my wife was at university with him and knew him much better. <laughs> but, uh, but no, I mean, the, the, the politics is fascinating. It's always changing. It's always different. And I'm, I'm just not a catastrophist. And, and do, you, do you think the left is going to actually capitalise now on Johnson's fallibilities, the, 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 corru- the sleaze scandals that are hitting the Conservative Party? Do you think they're actually going to be able to make inroads into that, into the red wall, as it were, and reclaim those heartlands? I haven't the foggiest notion. OK. <laughs> I, think, I, think, I, think, <laughs> I think the answer is probably yes. Um, really? I, I don't think Starmer's finished. I think he's, he's, he, I think he'd be regarded as a decent man, an honest man. Um, uh, he's got a long th- lot, lot to learn. I mean, don't try and play Johnson's game. I have just stood aloof from Johnson and just appeared to be a respectable potential leader. He's got a big problem with talent. Um, I mean, the Labour Party has not 
getting good people into Parliament. Mm. Um, it's cr I mean, the, Liberal, the Liberal Democrats, to me, are the, the, the Tory party in disguise. I mean, they're, they're the Tory party's useless, useful idiots. They're always sitting there, taking votes away from Labour just at the crucial moment when Labour most needs left of centre support. Um, and the, the, the Liberal Party are Tories <laughs> in the sense that they do not want Labour to win. Because if they wound up or did deals and seats with Labour, never to contest a potential Labour victory, uh, Labour Party would win, as would, as would Scotland. Scotland's a hot, no, I'm doing a book about um, the Celts at the moment. I mean, it's just phenomenal to me that the Scots haven't gotten to bed with Labour or Labour with the Scots. Because that's, you know, that's 50 seats. It's completely crazy. You, you genuinely think the Labour Party as it is now, obsessed with identity politics, unable to speak to ordinary people about the things that actually matter to them, economic inequality, housing, all of this. They don't talk about it. They talk about all this other sort of metropolitan liberal mm. stuff that we love to talk about here in London. You think they're going to make a comeback? I, I, well, yes, I do, because they always have. I mean, every, I mean, in the early 1980s, in this country, the Labour Party was completely finished. Yes. I mean, in, 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 in the late 50s, it was finished. Mark Abrams wrote a book called Why Must Labour Always Lose? I mean, these, <laughs> these books have been written for 50 years. Right. Um, uh, everybody starts new parties on the right and on the left. Mm. Yeah. And Nigel Farage is still mucking around with some party called UKIP or whatever. Um, the SDP is trying to refound itself. Liberal Democrats refuse to s shut up. Mm. <laughs> um, and yet Labour Party, the Labour Party does come back. Now, it, 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 it does need a Blair. Well, that's it, my point. It, it needs someone. Who, it needs someone who can talk the language of 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 not the extremes. Be those extremes, those of, of industrialized labour or of um, identity politics. Um, uh, I'm assuming that, that Keir Starmer, at some stage or in some sense, can can capture that particular initiative. You don't do it with an hour and a half speech at your party conference. For sure, that's for sure. But um, but. Um, the system has built into it the the, the, the reaction the, the the reaction to superiority. So I'm just assuming that will happen. I may be completely wrong, but I'm, it's, it's always happened before. So your argument is not so much that you see in the current Labour Party the seeds of recovery, but rather that historically this is what always happens. Parties go through downfalls, they they lose a lot, and people get fed up of losing, and then a Blair comes along. This is, Francis and I had an argument about this the other day on camera, and it's very much what I was saying, actually. Um, so I'm challenging from, from a devil's advocate point of view, more or less. But um, it strikes me that, I mean, I, I, I'm not saying this to flatter you, but you do seem to have very sensible views about a lot of these issues, the culture war issues particularly. I was, I was told I'd never be on television. Well, that's, <laughs> because, that's because, why. Because, because they can't, you, so we don't know where you're coming from. I, I yeah. Said, well, Coming from here, you know. Well, quite. So I'm sorry about being sensible. Go on, anyway. Well, and that's what we tried to do on the show, much much the same as you. So uh, forgive me for this question, but I have to ask you, you work at The Guardian. How do you manage to do that? Well, The, the Guardian publishes what I write. They pay me to write it and I, they publish it. I've got no problem. Yeah. Um, but next to that is an article about how skyscrapers are signs of toxic masculinity spewing male, actually, whatever, I, into the atmosphere. Actually, I rather agree with that point. I go along with that one, for sure. I hate, okay. sky, I hate skyscrapers. I like little Georgian houses. Yeah, uh, that's fine. But, but, but I'm not sure there's signs of I, toxic I, masculinity spewing male whatever well, into I, the atmosphere. I, I, I did once write an article 
said exactly that. It was all their priapic politicians with a, um, erectile dysfunction or something. I mean, <laughs> I mean, they are a feature of, 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 of male planning in some cure, or architecture, not planning, architecture. Plan is a different matter. Um, no, I mean, be that as it may. No, I mean, the dear old Guardian's fine. I mean, the, the Guardian needs to be there. I, I'm, I'm proud of a country that publishes the Guardian and that that paper is now second or third most widely read quality paper on earth. Um, and that's thanks to online. Um, uh, I, I've got no problem with it at all. It, it, it's, it's not monotheistic or monolingual. Um, it, 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 it has many points of view reflected in its pages. It's broadly speaking left of centre, that's true. Um, I wouldn't say I'm broadly speaking left of centre because I cannot place myself anywhere on the spectrum. On almost every issue I find I'm on the opposite position with someone else I thought I agreed with is on. Um, but... Uh, uh, no, I mean, I, 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 there was a time, I remember it well, I, I wrote a book about the press ownership back in the 19, late 70s, I think, in which the, of the seven British newspapers, first thing about newspapers, I may say, is when I entered newspapers, everyone thought, you're mad. The future is broadcasting, uh, as they now say, the future is podcasting and so on. Um, newspapers are dead. They're made of, made of dead trees, with dead ink, to dying people. They're finished. Uh, there were seven newspapers, daily newspapers in Britain then. There was room for two or three, we were told, by you know, pundits in the industry. There are eight today. Um, uh, they have a longevity that defies everything. But there was a time then when the only papers of the left were the Daily Herald, the, uh, the Guardian and the, um, and the Daily Mirror. Daily Mirror was up for sale. Daily Herald had gone bankrupt and bought by Murdoch or became the sun, and the Guardian was stuck in Manchester. Uh, if the Daily Mirror had gone to a, a right-wing owner, there would not have been a, a, a liberal voice or a left-wing voice in British press. I really thought that at that point the government had to act. Now, the system, for no reason to do with public policy at all, the system has nonetheless delivered a diversity of opinion throughout my life, throughout my whole life. It's extraordinary. Uh, and the Daryl BBC keeps it going against all... You know, knocks to its um, pride and so on, and it behaves idiotically, and yet it's still there, and yet it's still <laughs> diverse. And, and we're terribly lucky in this country. My, my, my son is in California. He just, I, I, I can hardly bear, you know, not, I mean, he gets the BBC online in all sorts of ways. But American press, and when I go to America, I, I feel quite frightened. Um, yeah. But I, I guess the reason I was asking about how you feel at The Guardian is I think... I, I, look, I don't want you to, you know, be throwing your colleagues under the bus at all. It's not what I'm trying to do, but it has changed. They throw me quicker than that. <laughs> <laughs> it has changed, hasn't it? Oh, I th oh yes, it has. I mean, all, all papers do change. No, it has changed. I mean, okay, let me rephrase. It's changed in the direction that I personally think is wrong. Well, that's uh, you disagree with it. No, right. no, 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 no. I like you think it's very important that the Guardian exists. I just think. Uh, it ought to do sensible articles of the centre-left, which I happily read and enjoy and sometimes agree with. I, all of this moronic culture war stuff, I think, is very off-putting. And it undermines the reputation of the paper as a whole, for me. Well, I'm, 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 I'm sorry you feel that. <laughs> there we are. I mean, I, what, what, what I, I just do think is very important for there to be a public voice for all points of view 
even in a, even in a polarized political environment, they rethink that. Um, I mean, the Guardian, the Guardian used to be the Manchester Guardian. It was a Liberal paper. It was not a Labour paper. Um, and and uh, I remember it as being sort of almost intolerably compromising on every issue. Um, it's not that anymore. You're quite right. It's 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 a, it's a, a champion, a, a banner waver for, for the left of the political spectrum. It is not of one voice any no. more than the left of the political spectrum is of one voice. To put it mildly. Um, and I think The Guardian does struggle to, to represent all points of view within what might be called the broad left of the spectrum. Um, and uh, a number of articles there drive me up the wall as they drive lots of people up the wall. I'm not surprised. They probably drive you up the wall. But I'm glad they're there. And I do think that the most important thing is the guardianship of diversity in the press and in the media. And if The Guardian wasn't there, there would be a very severe lack of diver diversity. And I feel that quite strongly. You mean diversity of thought? Yes. Yeah. Mm. We, we often use the terms diversity, but they tend to mean different things now, don't they? We don't tend to talk as much about diversity of mm. thought. And I'm really glad you brought that up. Why do you think that is, Simon? Well, diverse, the word diversity has been hijacked by identity politics. Mm. Um, and that's, you know, that says so much at the moment. Um, we could discuss whether I'm as, as, as equanimous about that as I am about other things, because I think there are dangers in that. Um, but, but I mean, I've always used the word diversity of the press as representing diversity across the left-right spectrum. That spectrum is now, is now sort of corrupted to such a degree that it's often difficult to define what it really means. Um, but I just want different points of view expressed, that's what I'm really saying. We were having a conversation before the camera started rolling about Margaret Thatcher. And in this country, she's, even though she died a few years ago, she still is a fantastic fantastically divisive figure and you are actually saying that there were certain qualities of hers and things that you did she did that you found quite admirable and I'll be honest with you uh <laughs> coming from a Guardian journalist I found that quite shocking what is it about Maggie that was that you thought was good and necessary at the time well she she, she made decisions and approached uh, issues of the day um in a way that had not been confronted for the previous, particularly for the previous 10, 20 years, um, and needed confronting, and no one had the guts to do it. Um, she did it often crudely, um, she did it often haphazardly, and she did it with a, a, a lack of sympathy and charm, which caused her great damage, no question about that. But, I mean, it, it's, been like, it's been like the interwar years. I mean, you've got to go back to the 1970s. The 1970 to 1976, 7, 8, 9, you really thought Britain was finished. You actually thought, I mean, quite apart from winters of discontent and rubbish piling in the streets and so on, which was quite so toxic to the political life of the country. Um, every other country thought we were dead. I mean, the, the British disease was, I mean, the, the, the British disease must not infect Europe as an obsession. We were members of the European community and people said, how can we stop the British disease infecting Europe? And that disease was over powerful trade unions, um, monopolies, state monopolies, uh, state owned half the half the, what now is the private sector. It was extraordinary, and no one in the Callaghan Wilson governments then had the guts to confront it. Ted Heath did for two years, and then perfunct it and did his great U-turn. Um, politics in the seventies was Britain at its most desperate, and in 19, the nineteen seventy nine, the nineteen eighty um, party conference season, I remember well. Everybody said Mrs Thatcher's finished. She'd been so unpopular. Uh, I mean, no one's going to vote for Mrs. Thatcher. And I remember I was in the political lobby then. Um, everyone was taking bets on this. 
And I, I just, I just, I, I'm, I'm like Anne now. I said, she's fine. She'll, you know, she'll come round. Like, she won't, she won't be gone by Christmas. And I remember sort of five or six senior political editors betting me, you know, ten quid. She'll be gone by Christmas. I'm like, I collected from half of them. Um, <laughs> <laughs> political editors never pay up. Um, but, uh, but, um, but, but the, 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 the fact is, by the late eighties, Britain was on a roll. Uh, and it was on a roll largely because of things done by Mrs. Thatcher or her government. Um, and it, it was the star of Europe. Now, that transformation <laughs> took place under that woman. And I, <laughs> it's a fact. And by the 90s, you know, we were absolutely creaming ahead. But, but that, that was almost inconceivable in the 70s. And so why is that being the case? Why is that... Why is she so divisive then? Why does she instill such rage and anger even now, 30 years after her government? I, I, I think we're, we're sitting in the East End of London saying that. I mean, I'm not quite sure people feel quite that strongly about it mm. elsewhere. Um, uh, they do in Scotland, where I lived for many years. They do in some parts of the North, some people. Okay, well, well, the reason is that she traumatised them. No question about it. She traumatised them. I mean, she, she, mining, which was a great sort of cultural um, sweep of England, was, was mining. She ended it. Um, steel collapsed under her. The British cars were useless. She said so. Um, uh, she, 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 she privatised great swathes of industry, which were heavily protect shipbuilding by, by the state. Um, all those interest groups suffered. Um, and, uh, and uh, you know... At the same time, she was not showing any great charm or sympathy for the NHS or for those things. No, she was unpopular. No question about that. Mm. Um, uh, and, and on top of that, God, as anyone who interviewed her knew, she, she had no personal sympathy with, with these people. You know, the famous stories about her going off to work in the morning and the children would wave at her from the upstairs room and she never turned back, whereas her husband turned back and waved. I mean, she was a difficult person. Mm. And and I just I just think that, that that you know one has to set these things to one side. Um, uh, I mean, one, one's criticising Boris Johnson for being Boris Johnson. People criticise Mrs. Thatcher for being Mrs. Thatcher. You've got at a certain point in the argument to set this to one side and say, are they doing the right thing? And um, and I think on the whole, she did the right thing, mm. ne- a necessary thing, if not the right thing. And it's curious as you're talking, it makes me think. And um, you know, I said when Keir Starmer became leader of the Labour Party, I said he needs to pick a fight with the extremists in his own party, get them out and do the right thing. He hasn't done that, in my opinion. But do you think it's an inevitable part of strong and good political leadership that you're going to do things that work for the country but maybe really don't work for some people and that's the price you have to pay if you're actually going to get things done? Well, uh, clearly the answer is yes. <laughs> um, uh, and, and I think, I mean, Blair, Blair's most impressive period was the two years before he became Prime Minister. Absolutely. And I remember interviewing him then, and, and I think this is, this is, this is I mean, he, 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 he took on the party constitution, he took on the national executive, he confronted all these pressure groups in, within his own party. Um, I talked to him about electoral mayors, election, uh, elected mayors, and the, the great sales pitch for elected mayors for Tony Blair was they, they might smash local Labour parties. That's what he saw as, a, as, as, as the opportunity. He told me to my face. Um, so you, you, you're right. Uh, he, he understood, and he had a group around him who understood and could work with it, that he had to transform the Labour Party. 
Now, I think it's more difficult at the moment because I don't think the Labour Party is institutionally um, anything like Blair was handling. Um, its problem is it's got a lot of rather weak leaders who talk the wrong language at the moment um, because of the nature of the groups within the Labour Party who support them. I do think the red wall thing is, is, is significant. I mean, I, I do think that, that the Labour Party is going to realise it's got to win these people back and it will not win them back with, with identity politics. It just won't. It's not the way to, to do it. What's wrong with identity politics, Sam? I think it's really damaging. I think, identi- I think identity politics is, is the... I mean, the essence of democracy to me is one man, one, one woman, one vote. Mm. One person, one vote. <laughs> and, uh, and, um, and, if you, if you, if you, and the differences that arise within a well-organised democracy are differences of, of opinion on policy. How do we want our country to be run? How do we want to, how do we want to live? Um, how do we want to treat people? Um, can we bring ourselves, to, given the fact that not everyone's the same, but we're treating them as the same for democratic purposes, they got one vote. We have to pretend, in a sense, that we are all equal. Uh, if you start saying, um, um, I regard you as privileged and myself as underprivileged, so I want positive discrimination in my favour, or I want to organise my politics around my group, not what we think, um, I just think you, you undermine democracy. I really do. And I think I think if, if you if you if you move down the route of of um, people voting as groups, this is what happens in you know, Iraq mm. and places like that. You, you vote with your with your with your family or group, whatever it might be. You do not vote for anything other than that. And your interest there is your interest. I mean, you're voting for your pocketbook or your job or whatever it is you're going to be able to grip. Um, and the idea of equality of opportunity, of the quality of of treatment, equality of approach, um, it goes out of the window if you go too far, too far down that particular route. Uh, one of the problems has certainly been that, that certain groups in British society historically, the, the poor, the Celts, uh, immigrants, wherever it might be, um, have not been treated equally. And now they've found a way of mobilising that um, sense of discrimination or sense of failure um, to their advantage. And a large chunk of the community feels guilty in responding to that, and it's that guilt that leads them to either make wrong decisions or not to get in the way of people who are making wrong decisions, which is the, the, the ultimate danger in democracy. It, it's not enough for you know, evil to triumph, just for good people to stay silent. I mean, you, if you stay silent in the face of some of these things that are happening, then they will go on happening. And it's mobilizing the silent majority, which has always been the great sort of cliche of democracy, is mobilising the silent majority that, that holds the, the way out of this. And I think we will get out of it. Um, it's a sort of a temporary hysteria, but it's certainly very vivid if you're a victim of it. And that's, do you think that's a controversial opinion to have if you're a member of the Labour Party on the left, this, crit, this critique of identity politics? I don't think so. I mean, I because everyone talks about it all the time. Mm. And, <laughs> Would you write something like this in The Guardian? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I look forward to it. <laughs> well, I mean, I mean, I, I, I've never felt I can't you know, write in the Guardian. I mean, they print what I write twice a week. I mean, or they put it online. Um, no, I mean, I, I, I it, it's partly the way you express it. I mean, I, and I, I do think that that. Um, I mean, you know, I, I was spent a year at Sussex University, you know, and I've I've decided to dissociate myself completely from it because of what they did down there. I thought it was just outrageous. Kathleen Stott, yeah. Yeah. Well, she was yeah. in this chair yesterday. Yeah. Oh, really? Yeah. yeah. 
Um, I think you're thinking of returning my honorary degree. Um, <laughs> but um, but uh, I mean, I, 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 A, I don't think we can, you can't continue like this. I mean, you can see what's happened in America. And America has this wonderful, I mean, you know, America goes right to the extreme. <laughs> and then Virginia votes out the Democrat. Votes for, would rather have Trump than this rubbish you're teaching us. Um, uh, you know, California, sane on drugs. Um, you know, America is, is both the most retarded country and also the most advanced. And it's, it's fascinating for that reason. Mm. Um, uh, I don't know how it's going to act out. Um, but all I just do know is, is that, is that I mean, you, I'm sure you have them in this chair. I mean, thousands of people, if not millions of people, don't go along with it. And, um, and almost all the people I talk to agree with me and, and you on the subject. So um, I, I, just, I just think we'll get over it. I wish I could. <laughs> Simon, I wish. Francis is having a meltdown here because for once someone is being positive about the future and he can't handle it. Go on, mate, go on. Tell, tell us about how depressed you are. Go on. It's what the people want to hear. It's what, they, it's what they come for with trigonometry and Francis yeah. Foster. Go on, mate. <laughs> I'm, I'm a rabid pessimist, hmm. Simon. And, and look, there's a part of me, I'm like all pessimists, I enjoy my pessimism. I enjoy it, I revel in it, I roll around in it every day, I, I wear it. It's, but I, my, my problem, and joking aside, is I don't see a way out. And when I don't see a way out of a problem, that's when the panic starts to arise. And I look at the Labour Party, and I look at the figures, I don't see someone with conviction. I don't see someone with passion. I don't see someone who can galvanise. I don't see anyone who can challenge. If I'm going to be blunt, I don't think I see many people with a backbone. And that's what worries me, even if they disagreed with me. If they had a backbone and go, no, this is what I think, I'd be far more likely to vote for that person. Well, you, you, you had, I, I saw the list. You've had plenty of people in this chair who, who, who say that or, or, or who got backbone, I think. Mm. Um, and I mean, many of them are friends of mine and, you know, I, I admire their outspokenness. Um, and, but I mean, you're asking me very specific questions about the past and the relationship between the past yeah. and the present. Yeah. And I try to set the present in the mm. context of the past because as the cliche goes, you won't know the future if you don't. So we, we have an obligation, uh, people of intelligence or whatever has, have an obligation to look to the past to learn from it. Um, and and I, 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 that things happen in Britain always which have distressed me no end and the things happening now which distress me. And when, it, when, it, when, when I see people behaving towards other people in a way that, that used to happen in totalitarian countries, mm. um, uh, I mean, some people, some people, not many people today, uh, treat other people they disagree with much as the pre-Reformation Church teach, taught, uh, treated heretics. I mean, yeah. and, and, and I think to myself, gosh, if these people were there, then they'd be doing the burning of the stake, mm, you know. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, and I just think, uh, are they aware of that? I mean, I, I remember my family, I may say a young, um, young radical, recently student, who, who says, you'll not get that. They're always in television. They're always, they're, you've got your way, your, your voice out. So you know, let us have a go. I mean, we have this sort of, <laughs> what might call unconstructive conversation. <laughs> um, but, but, but I mean, uh, uh, I, I sort of take her point. I mean, if I genuinely thought that, that, that the right-wing press is being shut down by the cultural warriors, then I would worry. Uh, there's not the slightest sign of that happening. Um, there's not the slightest sign of, of, their, of their critics not appearing on the BBC, uh, not appearing on your show and so on. So I just don't think things are as catastrophic as they're implying. 
And um, okay, well, but if you're asking me, if you're asking me, could I please give you the roadmap out? Then that's much more difficult. I grant you. Yeah. Okay, so let me help Francis. It's unusual of me because I try to be the positive one. But we, you talk about rewriting of history, for example. I mean, what happened last year to me? And I'm, I'm from Russia. Uh, I'm from a Jewish background, so all this white guilt nonsense doesn't apply to me. I just, it's, it's nothing to do with me. My ancestors didn't enslave anyone. My ancestors were slaves, right? So I don't buy into any of this crap. To me, what happened in this country last year when you had police officers being told don't shoot when they don't carry firearms, kneeling to an organization that wants to defund them, and the entirety of the media class, the entirety of the, the political class, all virtually bowing their head, bowing, bending the knee, whatever you want to say, to this absolute garbage that's come over from America. It's got nothing to do with the history of Britain, right? We don't have black people being shot by police in this country. This absurdity. And yet very, very few people had the backbone, as Francis says, to stand up against it. And now you're seeing, you talk about CRT in America, it is being taught in this country as well, right? And we've had people in that chair, Simon, who go, I don't agree with it. It's completely wrong. But my kids go to a school where this happens and I'm afraid to challenge it. To tell me that is not the path well, to ruin. Uh, it, it is. It's the path to ruin. If it were to be uh, the generality of what's happening in this country, mm. as it was in Virginia, I mean, there are there are there are schools in the United Kingdom, uh, which I came across at least ten years ago, where they still teach creationism. <laughs> there are places in the United Kingdom, and I'm talking about Northern Ireland here, you know, where 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 um, you know abortion is passionately opposed. Um, where the most rabid conservative opinions still rule, and we don't do anything about it. It's the United, the liberal United Kingdom. Uh, peace walls dividing our cities in the United Kingdom. I can't get anyone excited about that. Oh, the bloody Northern Irish, you know. Um, now, I'm not defending it, I'm not, not attacking it, but I just try to keep these things in perspective. Uh, the, the, the things that you were referring to last year, the, the, the reaction to it was instantaneous and fierce. I mean, you know, the, 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 you know, the Home Secretary, the police, they all said this is a mistake. It's like people who stopped the traffic getting onto the roads, which has enraged everybody. Your, your strength of feeling, I imagine, is shared by 60%, 70% of the population. And I just don't think it has any chance of becoming what might be called the, the, the light motif of British education policy or social policy. I just don't. Um, yeah, there's some crazes about. There have always been some crazes about. I mean, when I was a student, it, everything was Vietnam. Vietnam, Vietnam, Vietnam. Why don't you do more about Vietnam? Nothing to do with me, Vietnam. It's playing outside of the world. Oh, well, what's wrong with you? You know, you, you got some problem? Um, you know, come on, come on, let's march. You're going to smash something down. Um, okay, let me try again on a different subject now. Uh, you mentioned Muslim countries and you mentioned that. We've had a number of terrorist attacks in this country in recent days, which have been happening for a long time and statistically speaking, extremely unlikely to affect anyone watching this, listening to this, the, the tiny, tiny issue in terms of the number of people killed, in terms of the number of people physically affected. But again, the reaction, you know, this this Liverpool bomber that, that was talked about as a Christian convert, and we all just buy, like the Telegraph, the Telegraph are writing an article going, Christian convert bombs, really? Are we buying into this idea that this guy was actually a Christian convert? We're, we're going to just run with that? Do you know what I mean? So there's a cowardice about naming the problem on that issue, don't you think? 
I don't quite know which issue you're referring to. I mean, if, 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 I, mean I got quite strong views about terrorism. Terrorism is a crime. Yeah. It should not be treated as political at mm. all. Most of these people are mad in some degree. Mm. They've got problems. Um, I mean, they, they, they shouldn't be in this country or they should be locked up or whatever. Mm. I'm quite tough on that. Yeah. Um, but what I, what I refuse to do is to, is to recast my society because politicians and the media so exaggerate the threat. Uh, I mean, the threat from drug gangs is far worse than the threat. Well, we just live with it. You know, we just Agreed. live with it now. I mean, we live with these terrorist outrages. Um, and uh, and, um, and I, I... My point is more about the fact that we refuse to be honest about the issue. We refuse, when when, when uh, Sir David Ames was killed, the politicians started talking about online anonymity as if that had anything to do with this guy stabbing him. Right. Uh, the same with. The, so my point is, we refuse to talk about the issue. And I take your point about drug gangs. We've had Tony Saul on the show to talk about the, the impact in, in that community. But I, my worry is that we are no longer having an honest conversation, honest conversation mm -hmm. about so many issues. To me, that is the path to ruin as well. So I'm just trying to help Francis out. Well, well, well I, mean, I, I free speech is an absolute. Uh, except, of course, it isn't. <laughs> so you, you say, well, what, when I'm having an argument with a Home Secretary once about, about, about this concept of the, uh, causing offence as a crime, how do you define offence if someone feels offended? You mean the person who's the victim defines the crime? Well, that's where we are at the moment, you know. Well, I mean, I think this is crazy. Agreed. And, I mean, this was, this was 20 years ago. Um, now, it, 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 if anything, not quite as crazy now as it was then. But um, other forms of craziness have take out, taken over, and I imagine they always will. Um, if people haven't got big things to worry about, they'll find smaller things to worry about Agreed. and make the smaller things big. And that's what's happening with free speech at the moment. Um, it, it, to my mind, it's absolutely absurd that you, you, you try and institutionalise a reaction to people who say unfortunate words or whatever it might be. And this business in cricket and so on, it's, just, it's no good. I mean, I'm not defending it, I'm just simply saying there has to be a sense of proportion in our response to it. And we've lost that sense of proportion, partly because enough people have got a vested interest in keeping this ball rolling. Um, to every single paper when you open the page, you, you, there's another story about it. Um, I just, I mean, I just don't think it's going to, I don't think it, 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 it's something else to take its place. I mean, terrorism, I mean, the word terrorism was on every page of every newspaper every day, mm. more or less. Mm. Um, and there's a wonderful cover of Private Eye saying, we mustn't, we mustn't be terrorised into fear. <laughs> the one it was, on other pages, panic. I'm coming back to this I'm rather relentless theme about, about in political debate, although the debater, like Socrates, has a vested interest in, in bigging up his or her side of the argument. Mm -hmm. um, the, 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 the important thing in the outcome, which is why you have judges who aren't, decided, so to speak, um, is to put it in proportion. And getting it into proportion is the most difficult political task of all political tasks. It's easy to say what the problem is. It's easy to say what the solution is. Getting it into proportion, that's much more difficult. Simon, uh, Constantine's from Russia. Uh, my, my family, one half of them are Venezuelan. And over COVID, uh, alarm bells started to ring more and more in my head, particularly when it came to journalistic freedoms, particularly after what happened. Matt Hancock, he was deservedly fired for what he did, uh, breaking the, uh, the COVID regulations. And then Priti Patel trying to pass a bill. I, don't, I, I lost track of it. I don't know if it was passed where if a journalist was seen to humiliate the government, they could spend 14 years in jail. 
maximum sentence. Where do you see journalistic freedoms now? Do you think they're as free as they've ever been? Or do you think there's been an effort by the government in order to try and restrict them? Well, th- th- there's always the latter. If you just through the spy catcher, I can't remember the dates of spy catcher. It was amazing. The government simply said, you aren't allowed to say or do anything that we don't let you. I mean, it was almost at that level uh, about areas of government. Um, uh, I'm a great supporter of Index on Censorship and, and, uh, and other groups like that um, uh, into news. I mean, they're, they're important groups that champion journalistic freedom around the world. Um, I went to speak in Colombia once under, under the old regime. I mean, I mean, a quarter at least of the people I was talking to are now dead. Um, I mean, to be a journalist in these countries is to be brave. Um, I don't think you have to be very brave in this country. I really don't. Um, and, and I also think it's a rather booming profession. I mean, people always say it's, it's dead. It's not dead. More journalists are being employed every year than the year before, I think. And most of them in social media and all these sorts of activities. But they're in employment. And investigative journalism has, has never been so vigorous. I mean, the Panama Papers, I mean, all these, mm. these things and, the, and, and, and the, the, the WikiLeaks things The Guardian was doing um, are, are major, major disclosures of secret areas of, of the state and of the private sector, which were completely hidden before. And it's worth going back and looking at a newspaper. We were having this argument with someone. I said, right, let's get every copy of the Daily Papers from 1955. 1960, 1965, you sit down and read them. They are beyond belief dull. I mean, 90% of it was just reporting what happened in Parliament or the courts. Um, and there was, there was nothing revelatory or um, sensational. Tabloids were slightly different. But, but the, the quality of the journalism was appalling by comparison to today. And I just do think that, that, that I mean, you've just, you just seen it with sleaze. I mean, these, these guys weren't killing people. I mean, they were do- doing dodgy things, which they shouldn't be doing. All right, I'm not defending it. But, but I mean, they're killed. I mean, they're, they're, the, the, the savagery of the press response to them. I just, I think he's over the top. I really do. I mean, I've got some sympathy with Boris Johnson in some, some of his respects. Okay, I, I'll push I, back. I'm afraid. <laughs> I, agree, I agree with you. I'll, I'll, I'll push, push back, back on that. Um, so like I said, my mother's from Venezuela. I saw what corruption does. If you don't challenge corruption, if you don't root out corruption, corruption is like a cancer. It will spread its tentacles into every aspect of society. And ultimately, it, the society will crumble as a result. I've seen it with my own eyes. I think you need, when a corruption happens or when you see it, it needs to be ripped out and it needs to be attacked. Otherwise, what will happen is like I just said. And that, that's a doomsday scenario, but I've seen it. Would well, you not agree with that? I would. I mean, I, 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 I would very strongly. I mean, I, 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 it's one of the reasons why I, mean, I, I go to Venezuela a few times. Mm. And it's a lovely country when I was there. Mm. It's an absolutely marvellous place. Rich too. Yeah. Um, but, um, but, you know, it, 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 it went wrong. And uh, the question then is, what, what do I do about it? I mean, I can say that. I can commiserate. Uh, is it my business? I'm not so sure. I'm in a country which is probably the only country in the world where you can go into the public marketplace and buy yourself a seat in Parliament as a peer. You can actually buy yourself a seat in Parliament. I find that staggering. (laughs) I find no country that tolerates that is entitled to criticise any other country for the quality of their democracy, as long as that's the case in this country. And yet, people shrug and they smile and they do the things they do in in Turkey and they do in Brazil and so on. Oh, well, you know, it's, it's life. It's not life. It, 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 as long as you're selling seats in Parliament, it's not life, it's corrupt. 
Um, British politics, I did a terrible round the BBC because I said it was corrupt in some news programme. They said, you can't use that word. Of, you know, <laughs> you've, got, you've got to be able to prove it. Oh, should we have a court case? Let's, let's, yeah. let's discuss it in court, you know. Yeah. This, this poor presenter has obviously been told never to allow the word corrupt to be applied to the Conservative government. I can't believe it. But, but I mean, I, I think, what I'm really saying is, is, is it's a complicated message, that the, the, the terms of the debate matter. If you want other people who disagree with you to be persuaded by you, you've got to go, in a sense, some way into the conversation to establish the rules of the game. Is it, um, when, when Kenneth Clark was doing his great series on civilization, he was asked in the very last programme, what are the defining qualities of, 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 of a civilised country? And he said, very interestingly, he said, I think actually it's, it's the courtesy of public debate. Interesting word, courtesy. And it's rather what I'm discussing here now. It's the terms in which you conduct this debate. Um, do, you, do you hold your head in your hands and scream or burst into tears or shout or whatever? <laughs> or, or do you say, no, why do you think that? I mean, wh wh why do you, you know, as I try to say to my niece, I mean, why do you think that? Um, all right, you think it's true, but I mean, do you, firstly, do you respect my not agreeing with you? I mean, do you use the word respect at all in terms of this conversation? But having established respect, we then have rules in which we conduct this, and those rules are governed by what I call courtesy. Um, I, I, I think coming back to your point about freedom, freedom of speech, I mean, I think these are, the, these are the essential qualities of freedom of speech, not just being allowed to shout louder than the other guy. No, absolutely right. Yeah. Uh, but, but I think Francis' point, I, I, I hear what you're saying is, and I agree, to me, I, I'll be honest with you, maybe this is my Russian background, but it's like politicians being corrupt. I saw the Blair government, they were exactly the same. Exactly the same, in the same way that the, these guys are doing what they're doing. Those people were taking cash for questions and all of that stuff, right? This was all happening. And I kind of see it as a sort of should be condemned, should some, someone somewhere should do something about it, really. But it's kind of the price of doing business, isn't it? Well, I mean, and you, you, you've, you've seen with these, with the, I, I, we have not heard the end of this yet. But £38 billion pounds was swilling around Whitehall for about six months over test and trace and PPE, the beginning of the pandemic. And it was as if, it was as if you were suddenly in, 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 in Russia 1990. Mm. Mm. Yep. I mean, everybody think, Jesus Christ, I can, I can make a fortune. Mm -hmm. Well, are you, you sure? You could, I can make a fortune. Well, it's not right. I can make a fortune. I mean, people were just into that trough in a brace of shakes. And the system helped them. And we don't know where 30, probably more like 20 now, but we don't know where 20 billion went. I, I don't feel, I doubt if the National Audit Office will ever find out. This was a deeply corrupt period. There were reasons for it. You know, governments were panicking. But nonetheless, when you suspend the rules of the game, you get corruption. And, so, uh, and I'll push back once more, Simon. So we have, we have a housing crisis in this country, which is having a huge untold impact on the lives of young people, on birth rates, on society. And no government, whether Labour or Conservative, has, has done a lot to change that. They haven't done a lot to solve the problem. The problem has continually got worse. Johnson, when he got elected, one of his pledges was that he was going to do something about it. Michael Gove gets 120 grand from housing companies. All of a sudden, it's been shelved to the back. Now, are those two things connected? I'm not sure. But we, once again, we kick a huge societal problem. We kick the can further down the road. Well, I don't agree. We have no housing crisis. We have a housing market. The housing market 
houses most British people perfectly satisfactorily, apart from the homeless, who I do worry about. Um, uh, the, 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 the place where the housing crisis is supposed to be worst is London. Okay? London has the youngest labour force and the youngest population in Britain. They live somewhere. Um, the, the tradition that everyone should have their own, own their own house at the age of 30 is absurd. It applies in no other country. It was started by Thatcher, my, my friend, not yours. Um, <laughs> you said everyone, everyone has a right to a house, to own a house. Um, and she sold off you know, public housing stock to these people who immediately rented it up for profit. But, but um, uh, I just don't see this housing. I mean, every country in the world, you read The Economist every week, has, has house prices going up by faster than inflation. The biggest problem is we underuse houses. That's the crisis. In London in particular, London has the lowest house occupancy of any city in Europe. Um, we've got sort of two bedrooms for every person. And the reason for that is the taxation system does not tax properties, it should. Uh, and we tax housing transfers through stamp duty, which means that no one has, a vested has any interest in selling their large house and getting into a smaller one. So all housing policy is crazy. But I just don't, I don't see a crisis. Uh, the only crisis is homelessness. And that is what we're, we're pouring money into first time buying immediately increases the price. So the taxpayer is increasing house prices. Yes. Uh, I agree money, with you there, but Simon... That come, money ought to go on homeless But people. come on, you say there's no housing crisis. You've got young people who are living five to a flat. What that means is they're not going to get, they're not going to be getting married. They're not going to be having children. That affects their outlook on life. It means they act in less mature ways, frankly. We see it with our generation. Uh, the, the percentage of your, of your income that is spent on housing is rising rapidly for young people in particular. It's what, it's what I paid. Percentage-wise? Yeah, I, I paid 35% 30, of my income when I was young on my house. Uh, it was crazy. I was buying a flat. I shouldn't be. I should have been, should have been renting. I hadn't settled. You, you buy a house, in Germany, you buy a house and you settle. Uh, you rent otherwise. Uh, we're now back to the renting levels that we had you know, quite some time ago before the, before the house buying boom got, went out of hand, which it never did in Germany, incidentally. It was, it's quite interesting how different places are. Um, the word, this word crisis goes with the word housing as if it's one phrase. I mean, there's, there's not a transport crisis or a food crisis or anything. There's a housing crisis because we're so used to using the phrase that the, the housing the house building lobby always use. Um, no, I, I just think, I think government ought to be in housing except for very, very poor people. But the problem is the government isn't housing and it's messing well, everything it's, up. Well, it's messing it up by, by effectively subsidising house, house prices yeah. and the house prices go up. But, but people still buy houses and people still live in London. I mean, there's scandals. Scandals as empty property. Scandals as foreigners buying houses and not living in them. Mm. That I deal with. But, but, but there, there, there are... All I can say is you walk the streets of London. I mean, a, you can then walk the streets of Manchester. It's as if there were two age groups. London, London is just so young now. I live mean, five to a flat ones. I mean, come on. But do, do you not think that it's a problem where people can't see a way out of a rental situation, where they have no hope in being able to afford well, to I, buy a place because house prices have increased a huge amount and wages haven't kept up? Surely that's a problem, Simon. It's not a problem, it's a fact. If it is a fact, I mean, uh, uh, it is all, a fact. all the younger people I know seem somehow to find somewhere to live, is all I can say. Uh, it may not be where they want to live. People always want a better house. So that, that, that demand always exceeds supply. So the concept of housing need is meaningless. It's used by the government still. It's an old Marxist concept. The only survival of Marxism in British government is the concept of housing need. Um, 
uh, as if there's a fixed number of people and a fixed number of houses. There aren't. It's a highly fluid market. I can get to streets in, in suburban Manchester. You can walk along empty street after empty street after empty street. You can find that in parts of the West Midlands, empty street after empty street. There's plenty of houses. Not only that, but they're all, they're all carbon sinks. I mean, the last thing we should be is demolishing them and building blocks of flats, which we're continuing to do. But, but people want to live in the southeast. House prices go up in the southeast as they go up in Sydney and Melbourne, San Francisco and Los Angeles, around New York. Britain is, is in the lower half of world capitals in terms of house price increase inflation. Just look at the facts. It's one of my sort of jobs to do occasionally. <laughs> um, it is not a problem. It's, 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 a, it's, a, it's a need. People want better houses. There's no question about that. And they all want to live in the countryside. And they want to drive to work. They want to not have to sweat on the commuter trains. It may well be that's going to be the, the, the new pattern now after lockdown. Mm. I don't think so, but it may be. But, but I mean, you, you can literally do what everyone wants. And you can, you can simply build houses over the whole of, of Kent and East Anglia. And that's what people will want. That's what people they will demand. And I'll keep on saying there's a crisis because I can't get what I want. But people starting out on life often have trouble living in the space they can afford. It's not I knew about that. Um, housing standards in Britain are better than they've ever been in history. So there's not, there wasn't some golden age when everybody has exactly the house they wanted and... Um, Possibly between the wars, which is sort of golden age, um, but no, I, I just, I just, I just don't recognise this this word crisis. I just don't. All right, Simon, it's been. Sorry, a... okay. no, it's fine. It's fine. This is the nature e of the everything show. Everything is fine, and as a result, Francis is going to get more depressed than he usually is. <laughs> uh, but Simon, it's been a pleasure chatting with you. We've got a couple of questions for our local supporters, but before uh, we wrap up the interview, where well, we end with one final question, which is, of course, what is the one thing we're not talking about as a society that we really should be? I think, well, I, I just, I'm always fascinated by taboos. And mm. I, 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 given what we've all been talking about. I mean, yeah, I, as are we, as you can tell, I think. They're, they're mercifully slightly fewer than they were, yeah. but, but there's always a new taboo bubbling along. Um, and, and, and because of my past interest in the subject, I've always felt that, that there's, there's a curious taboo about, about um, pleasures that other people have but we don't have, uh, of which the classic one is taking soft drugs or taking drugs in general. I regard drugs as a menace. Um, and uh, serious drugs are a serious menace. Um, but the handling of drugs fascinates me because over, over the whole Western world, not so much the Eastern world, we simply don't know what to do about it. We, can handle, we reckon we can handle alcohol, which is a very serious drug. We can handle obesity, we think, which is a serious <laughs> drug or the result of a serious drug. Um, we handle smoking rather successfully. We didn't handle it by banning smoking. We banned it. We handled it by regulating smoking. But but um, recreational drugs, as they're called, in some sense, rightly so, absolutely defeat us. And the United Nations you know, went along with Nixon in declaring war on drugs. It's it's ruined half a dozen Latin American countries, mm -hmm. including maybe Venezuela. Um, I mean, I was in Peru. I, mean, I couldn't believe the the, the, the wreckage the American drugs market has caused on these countries, of which Mexican, Mexico is the most devastating, entirely by drugs. The entire criminal class is built on drugs. The same is true in large parts of Europe. It's true in a number of English cities. The county lines phenomenon has is, is, is brought an extraordinary degree of criminal activity, and we just can't handle it. We just can't handle it. And the result is that we... we and I was on the committee that was reviewing the 1973 Drugs Act... Um, 
it has been changed. It's half a century of this problem. We haven't begun to tackle it. And I just find it so depressing that, that, that the government, which now has examples around the world of all sorts of different ways of tackling it, in this country is one of the most um, backward and unreconstructed. And I, I, I almost give up. Well, Germany is about to decriminalize cannabis. Uh, do you think decriminalization is, is the solution for, for yeah. those types of drugs? I, I, I de decriminalize all drugs. I would de 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 decriminalize all things. There's no point in criminalizing a market. It's like going to the Gulf and, and criminalizing oil. It's like that. Everybody's in this business. All right, we'll have to do it under the counter. Uh, I, I think you, you, you decriminalize it, yes, um, but you regulate it. You just regulate, like you regulate tobacco, you regulate drink. I mean, all these things are regulated. There's no reason why this shouldn't be regulated. And what's so fascinating now is that about six states in America are doing it different. They're all doing it differently. Some it's working, Colorado it's working, some it's not. California is not working very well. But, but, but they're all at least taking a great chunk of, quotes, criminal activity out of the criminal sphere. And sooner or later, prison population will come down Police will be less worried about this one particular crime. Um, mental health can get into operation to tackle people with drug problems, which is a huge issue. Um, we underestimate how massive the consequence is of criminalizing drugs. Couldn't agree with you more on that yeah. one. Simon, been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for coming on. Uh, where can people find your work? You write for The Guardian, obviously. Is there anything else people should go and, and see? Any books they should check out? Any, any good bookshop. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. Look up Simon Jenkins. Thank you uh, for watching and listening at home or wherever you've been. And we'll see you very soon with another brilliant episode like this one or Raw Show. All of them go out at 7 p.m. UK time. And for those of you who like your trigonometry on the go, it's also available as a podcast. Take care and see you soon, guys. We hope you've enjoyed this incredible interview. Remember to subscribe and hit the bell button so that you never miss another fantastic episode. And if you believe that the work we do here at Trigonometry is important, support us by joining our locals community using the link below. Before you go, consider joining our exclusive member feed. As a member, you'll get ad-free and extended interviews. Click the membership link in the podcast description or find the exclusive episodes link on your podcast listening app to join us.